I was sitting in my truck. It was dark. It was quiet. There was like nothing going on. I was parked like literally a hundred yards from the, from the border. And uh, I'm parked right there and just kind of chilling out. And I'm listening to the radio, AM radio. This tells you how long ago it was, you know, sitting in my Bronco. And I just suddenly I blink and then there's a guy sitting there and he's wearing a white shirt and he's wearing blue jeans, a little bit heavy set. I knew exactly who it was because I had seen him before. I had met him before in life. I met him and he was one of the agents who had passed away in a motorcycle accident off duty. And they had spread his ashes on the river down there. This is Meredith for real, the curious introvert. And I'm Meredith. Here we explore the nuanced, less obvious and paradoxical aspects of society. I like to say a bear is okay, a tricycle's cool, but a bear on a tricycle? Now that's interesting. Add a dash of taboo and we're there. These are the conversations you thought you'd never get to have. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. This week we kick off spooky season with just that, a bear on a tricycle. He's a former service member, a former border patrol agent, and a skeptic, quick to say he doesn't understand everything he's seen. And in this remastered episode, he shares tales from his time working the Mexican border. Dead co-workers showing up for duty, unexplained thermal readings, as well as leyline and stone tape theories. He also shares some tales from the living, the unlikely characters he's captured crossing the border. And if you end up liking this episode, you'll also like the one I did with Hawaiian culture ambassador and legendary storyteller, Lopaka Kapanui about the haunted tales of Hawaii. That's episode 159. And lastly, if you've enjoyed a couple episodes of the show, it would be so awesome if you could tap those stars on the Apple Podcast app. I know leaving a full review can feel like the essay assignment you didn't ask for, so don't worry. Just leaving a star rating helps a ton. All right, friends, keep it curious. Here, haunted corn maze. Haunted House. Haunted Cemetery. All places you might visit if you enjoy the spooky. But what about a haunted border? The Texas-Mexico border is a unique place. Its harsh landscape is filled with dinosaur tracks and fossils, but the Sleta community of El Paso is also known for its paranormal activity. My next guest grew up as far away from the supernatural as you can imagine. After graduating high school in Montana, he served 13 years in the Air Force as a mechanical flight engineer and field artillery surveyor until he became a U.S. Border Patrol agent in 1998. It goes without saying that he saw lots of things over his 23-year career, but it's the ghost stories that really stand out. Today, he's going to give us a seat at his virtual campfire and share some of his encounters. From engineering to ghost telling, the El Paso ghost magnet, detective for the deceased, Leon Baker. Thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. Happy to be here. I was really surprised by just how many incidents there were at the at the border, how common these stories were. Do you have any uh, theories as to why the border has so much paranormal activity? You know, it's odd. You got, you got these uh, things they call ley lines. And I don't, I don't really buy into the ley line theory too much, but they say that based on where these lines lie across the globe, those areas are more of a hot spot for paranormal activity, paranormal incidents. 
It's supernatural. We're nowhere near any real ley lines. I, I'm pretty sure the ley lines are just built for map making and, and stuff like that. They're not really something that exists on the earth. Uh, I'm going to get somebody's going to throw something at me, I'm sure, right now. But <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that theory too, like around like Skinwalker Ranch. And I think the pyramids are a part on this ley lines. So, but that's interesting that you don't really buy into it. You actually weren't even a big spooky fan until a lot later in life because you had personal experience with the supernatural is that what made you get into it yeah you know what <laughs> real quick story is that when i was a child i was staying with some friends in kansas at this little farmhouse and they said hey let's go in this room we're gonna play this cool game we're gonna shut off the lights and we're gonna lock you in this room oh my god um, it, and it happened to be what they used to call the coffin room where they would keep the the, the deceased during the wintertime until the, it was unheated, it, you know, so it, it refrigerated the body. Oh, my gosh. You know, and all these old farmhouses had this until the ground was thawed out enough so they could put them in the ground. <clears throat> so that was this room. But for them, it was just storage. And they said, we're going to go. You're going to go in this room and you're going to hide in this room. We're going to shut off the light. You're gonna, we're going to lock you in there. It's really fun. But they were like, hey, well, let's mess with this guy. And they said, it's really fun because the ghosts drag the clothes between your feet. And I said, hell no. And nowadays I'd be like, yeah, that'd be cool. But <laughs> no, my real first experience that was in a hangar at Hickam Air Force Base in uh, Hawaii, it had been hit by um, the Japanese attack. So there was bullet holes, grapnel holes, all kinds of damage to the hangar that you could still see from, from December 7th, 1941. And wow. inside there, there are people walking around and talking. I could hear people humming a tune. Um, what? Door opening and closing. You could hear it. I mean, you were you could hear as if there were probably about four or five people in the hangar with you. When that happened, it, it was usually late at night and I was alone. That was it. I was me. It, there was nobody else in the hangar. You know, I felt I figured out it was residual. I didn't know what residual meant, but I was looking at a, at, at one of the doors that between the hangars, like the sides, and I'd hear it open and close by itself. It's probably four o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. And I hear it open and close by itself, and I was staring right at it. And I was like, that thing didn't move. Oh, these are just echoes. These are just like supernatural echoes of people in the past. You know, that's all that is. So it really didn't freak me out. You know, after that, I just knew that it was just sound. Okay, so you're already diving into terminology. I do not know. So residuals, is that's like a type of ghost? Yeah, it's it's not really a ghost. It's sort of a residual energy, um, sort of spark from the past. It's an imprint of energy left by a living person. So if the conditions are just right, it kind of replays itself. Some people call it the stone tape theory. There's all these theories, you know, that originated back in the old days. But it's sort of like the the building actually records the activity in its structure. Oh, and interesting. Then, yeah, it's like a record player. And you put the needle on the record player, it plays the music. Just like this, if the conditions are right, the, I don't know, the electrical conditions, the atmospheric conditions, maybe the earth itself, when all that stuff is just right, it replays this activity that took place, you know, 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, whatever it is, you know, they, they, they've seen Romans walking on English roads, like in a column, except they're like up to their waist in the ground because the old road is, is three feet lower underneath the ground. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a residual type of, of haunting where it's not intelligent. So you can't interact with it. 
there may have been some, you know, actual intelligent haunting going on. I certainly wasn't going to go look for it. I didn't even know that was possible back then. Well, I didn't even think about there being different types of ghosts because, I don't know, I just put all of it into one category in my mind. So, I mean, what is your theory on ghosts? Some people think it's telepathic entities projected into the world from our minds. Some people feel it's, you know, spirits that have unfinished business. A lot of Christians feel that it's demons playing tricks on you. Do you have a theory? There's a lot of different things out there that we don't know about. I mean, we're discovering different types of spiders like monthly, you know, there's things we don't know. And I think a lot of the paranormal entities that we know that we think are ghosts or uh, supernatural or something like that is just something we haven't discovered yet, like shadows. My theory is the shadow person is actually an animal. It's just an energy type of animal that we haven't uh, quite uh, figured out how to capture. What's the shadow animal? It looks like a person. It could take different shapes. It can camouflage itself in a room, like in a corner where it's a little darker. It'll be there, but you can't see it. They can't understand language. This is what we've discovered, you know, being an investigator and working with these things uh, for the past 10, 11, 12 years is that they don't understand language of any sort, but they understand body language. So you see it, you face it, it takes off. You know, it understands body language like an animal does, like a dog does. So it's just, it's at that point, somebody says, once science understands that the shadows do exist and shadows are something that can be measured and studied and put in a zoo or whatever, um, (laughs) once they understand, once they believe science accepts the existence of these things, that's when the ghost hunter would become the exterminator and it wouldn't be funny anymore. But that's just shadows. And there's so many, me and my team have seen so many different odd things that we just don't understand. Like what appeared to be like, for a lack of a better description, like flying black shadow snakes in a room. We sat there and watched these things. They would appear and be gone. And they were like this portion of a shadow that were just floating through the room. Uh, They were there for like maybe a half a second. Wow! You see that? Yes, I saw that. Yes, I saw that one too. We we're, we're all seeing these things in the in the same room. I don't know what they are. So, so your your theory is mostly we don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's actually a really good theory because then you're, you know, uh, you're not set in one thought, and certainly in your line of work, you experience lots of different types of paranormal activity, and for those. We're kind of skipping ahead a little bit. So to make sense of when I say his line of work, he's actually the owner of El Paso Ghost Tours. And so he has not just his Border Patrol experience, but also experience in one of the most haunted regions in Texas. So but let's skip to the Border Patrol experience. While you were on patrol, what was the closest personal encounter to a ghost you had? I was sitting in my truck. It was dark. It was quiet. There was like nothing going on. I was parked like literally a hundred yards from the, from the border. And uh, I'm parked right there and just kind of chilling out. And I'm listening to the radio, AM radio. This tells you how long ago it was, you know, sitting in my Bronco. And I just suddenly I blink and then there's a guy sitting there and he's wearing a white shirt and he's wearing blue jeans, a little bit heavy set. I knew exactly who it was because I had seen him before. I had met him before. In life, I met him. 
And he was one of the agents who had passed away in a motorcycle accident off duty. And they had spread his ashes on the river down there. And I turned to look at him like, what are you, what are you doing in my trip? You know, you're dead. You're not supposed to be here. You know, and I, I spun around really fast and my heart rate just was going through the roof. I was just, I, I can't say I was panicked, but I was adrenalized. And I just threw it in reverse and I backed out of that dark area and I took off down, down the, uh, down the street. And I decided I wasn't going to set myself up in that spot anymore. Uh, I'd rather see somewhere else. And for some reason, during my entire 23 year career after that, uh, I never parked there again. Yeah, <laughs> I don't blame the location you. Location has nothing to do with what happened, but I just couldn't bring myself to park there again. Even though I've had, you know, terrifying uh, experiences later on, this was kind of a friendly one, you know? Uh, right. That was kind of friendly. If it felt like he was messing with you a little bit or just popping in to say, hi, you know, here, here to hang out with you. Did you know him personally? Uh, I met him a few times. He was one of the guys. He's a lot more senior to me. When he passed away, I had like a year maybe in the patrol. Uh, so I had only seen him a couple of times. He was on a different shift than I was, but I'd, I'd cross paths with him, caught a ride with him now and then in one of the vehicles. Uh, at work and you know that sort of thing chit-chatted with him a little bit he's a really good guy really good guy it's a huge loss to see him go but i wasn't like close personal friend but i knew exactly who he was and uh many of my friends uh, many of my coworkers have seen him also seriously yeah in the same way popping up in the passenger side of a truck oh yes oh my gosh he has an mo <laughs> yes one guy saw him a different way and he had to admit he was starting to nod off a little bit and he was real close to the river, which that's kind of dangerous. And so the agent, the, the spirit agent, <laughs> he pops up in the passenger window and he says, don't trust him and nods like that. And my friend looked right at him and, and, and so he couldn't figure out what this guy was doing standing there wearing an older, outdated uniform. And he just like lo looks at him. He freaks out, of course. And I'm sure he got the shot of adrenaline too. And he looks on the south side at that point to look on the south side of the river, the border, to see what he's talking about. And there's the Mexican police department, a couple of units from Mexican PD. Like they're over there doing something. They got their lights turned off and they're just doing something. So this, this agent was telling him, don't trust those people over there. They're up to something. And that's kind of when he shows up. It's when something's going on. There's a, there's a crime afoot. But when he saw him, as soon as he looked over, he looked back at the ghost agent, he disappeared. Oh. And he said he's a white guy, kind of tall, cowboy hat, uh, a little bit heavy set, and he's wearing the metal badge. And nowadays we wear a fabric badge. So on that day, he saw him wearing the old school metal badge that I used to wear in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I said, I know exactly who that is. He popped up in another guy's truck. This agent jumped out of his truck, circled around the back of the truck with his gun drawn like that. Like it, you just couldn't figure out how this stranger had gotten into the truck because, because that agent had never met him in person. No, there's very few people that are still on duty that, that ever met the guy in person. I was 20, what, 23 years ago when he passed away, 22 years ago. So that makes yeah. the cooperation even more eerie that they're describing the same person appearing in generally the same way in the same clothes. Ugh. Oh, and sometimes he's in uniform. Sometimes he's in civilian clothes. So that indicates to me it's sort of a, it's a it's an intelligent 
thing. It's him. I saw him in clothes that I had seen him in at the station, but I had also seen him in uniform in life, but he showed up in civilian clothes. Fascinating. Tell me about the girl in the white dress. There seems to be different versions of her. This is the one, I mean, I, I read about her through Rocky Elmore's book, but I've also heard from other agents that had been stationed over there that they had seen her also. They had seen her walking on a ridge line by her. We're talking like a, like a five-year-old girl. Um, and she's walking on a ridge line by herself. She gives off her own little glow and stuff like that. I mean, I think the most terrifying incident that happened was when the agent saw a child in a white dress in the water. You know, there's like little, uh, a stream that runs through there and she was laying face down in the water, you know, and he runs back to his truck to call it out. And so he, he says, Hey, control, I got this going on. I got this little girl over here. I think he had maybe put out a little bit on the radio. Something catches his eye and he looks over and she's standing right there five feet away. Because a lot of people think, oh, you know what? The, these ghost stories are just stories. No, they happen. They, they happen. And they, if you're not prepared, mentally prepared for something like this, it is going to throw you for a loop. The only way I would be prepared if I was on Border Patrol for these ghosts is by having an extra set of underwear in my patrol kit. Like, <laughs> I don't think I could actually prepare for that. Yeah, you kind of wonder, who was she? That area is pretty popular for migrants coming over and coyotes bringing groups of people over. And a lot of people die in that area from thirst or mountain lions or murder. Did you ever have conversations with the people that you apprehended at the border? Oh, yeah. I've talked to a bunch of them. I mean, most agents with a little bit of time in, you know, they, they've caught thousands and thousands and thousands of people. If you tell a normal, like a regular uh, police officer, oh, I've, I've arrested thousands, you know, 10,000 people myself, they're, they're like, you're a liar. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But we're catching groups at a time, like 40, 50 people at a time. It is definitely a daily thing. An agent can catch two, 300 people in a day. Back in the day before all this stuff was happening, it was more like you'd catch five a day or six a day in, in my area on average. But anyway, I talked to a lot of people, a lot of people. I caught this one kid. Uh, he's probably, I think you say he's like 19, 20 years old and wear a ball cap. He had the uh, like rancher clothes, like he worked on a farm and I started speaking to him in Spanish. He's like, I'm sorry, man. They're going to have to talk to me in, in, in English. I, my Spanish ain't that good. Where are you from? And he's like, well, I was born in Mexico. I'm illegal. <laughs> That's the, where are are you living? Where, where are you from now? And he's like, oh, I'm over here, Anthony, New Mexico over here. The kid talked like he was from like Georgia, living in Ant Mexico. I don't know if he was faking the accent, but he straight up admitted that he was from Mexico here illegally. It threw me off. I was like, well, why didn't you just lie to the customs guys when you came in and just tell them you're American? What happened to him? Did he have to go back? Or I mean, that's such an odd set of circumstances. Oh, yeah. Back in those days, we had the voluntary return where you basically take a fingerprint, uh, two fingerprints. A photograph, you put down their biographical information on a piece of paper and have them sign it saying they wanted to go back today. And then 15 minutes later, they're having a, a taco and water. We walk them across the bridge. We tell them where to go. Go across the bridge over there. And they go back across the bridge. I'd say probably about one in 10 would actually have to go to jail because they had warrants or, or they've been caught too many times or something. I remember you talking about you, you met a guy who was an anthropologist. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're in a cotton field is probably two o'clock in the morning. Uh, it's out of town. I mean, it's dark. It's lonely. There's like orchards and stuff around there. Uh, it's in a place called, uh, Clint and, uh, Clint, Texas, which is east of El Paso, a little ways. And so we caught this group of probably about 25 and we pulled them out of this cotton field. Cotton can get pretty high. So we pulled them all out of this cotton field. We got the last of them. We had them lined up on the road and we're asking each of them just random questions. You know, what do you do for a living? Where are you from? Where were you born? How old are you? Just stuff like that. Kind of passing the time, you know, chit-chatting with some of the, some of the people that came across. And one of the guys tells me, he goes, Hey, Baker, this guy says he's a fucking anthropologist. I walk over and I said, really? He goes, I am an anthropologist, but I am not fucking. But you know, that he just started laughing, you know? So we kind of broke the ice at that point. I'm not the bad guy at this point, right? And I said, what are you doing? We, we need anthropologists in this country. You just fill out some paperwork, you know? You come in legally. You got a green light. And, and he goes, well, it's too hard. And I said, oh, and this is easy? You're laying out here, you're an anthropologist. You're laying out here in a cotton field. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. You know, I've, I've caught doctors. I've caught uh, one of those guys that put the braces on people. Orthodontists. You know, yeah. Orthodontists. His, him and his family, they all, he didn't have braces, but the wife and kids all had braces. And I was like, well, he's not lying. Hey, Curiositors, just a quick pause to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. My husband and I have been using Liquid IV since 2019, and we love it for staying hydrated during these hot August days when we're milking the last drops out of summer. I just tried the watermelon flavor, and it might be my new favorite. It's tied with strawberry lemonade. And I love that we don't have to pack extra bulky drinks, just a little packet that we can easily put in a water bottle. And it has three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks. Get 20% off when you go to Liquid IV.com and use code curious at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop better hydration today using promo code curious at liquidiv.com. Don't pick another boring venue for your next work event. Check out one of the Pensacola Historic Trust 12 museums. If you watch the show on YouTube, you see the beautiful backdrop of Trader John's, the exhibit where I record the show inside the Pensacola Museum of History. Booking an event with the Trust will not just be memorable for your guests, it will support the efforts to keep Pensacola's historic charm preserved. And if you're planning a trip here and need an indoor activity option, pick up a ticket in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Learn more at historicpensacola.org. Summer is winding down, but the mosquitoes are not, at least not in the southern U.S. I've been using Insects Mosquito Service since 2019, and they continue to impress me. They guarantee their work, and pollinators are always top of mind. If you're hoping to enjoy some porch time when the weather does cool down, get on their schedule now so you're not run off by the mosquitoes. If you're in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give Insect a call, ensec.net. Now back to the show. Remember to stay till the end where I give you a sneak peek of next week's episode. So I always thought when I heard these stories, usually from the news or whatever, like, why, why don't people just do it the right way? I mean, like you said, why would they make it so hard? And I just, I don't know, I, I didn't realize I had no concept of what the immigration process was. 
And I had a Canadian friend at the time that I saw probably about twice a week. So I had a chance to get regular updates from her. And her immigration process was brutal and expensive. And she always had to backtrack and uh, drive like faraway places to meet in person at an office to do something. And it was, and, and she was even married to an American and it was just insane. And she would be like, oh yeah, you're going to be official in like a couple of weeks and something would happen. And uh, I mean, I feel tired just thinking about it. Have you learned more about the immigration process that you didn't know since being a border patrol agent? Well, yeah, kind of. I mean, uh, they gave us these books. Oh my gosh. This is, this is the old process. For those listening and not watching, he's holding up a three inch thick book. Three inch. Yeah. Three inch thick. Uh, the immigration law book, uh, it is officially 1,975, 76 pages. Right. 1,976 pages of laws that, uh, during my academy days when I had to, we had to learn most of it and it's a mess. Like it, it's a mess. Uh, we, we get people by the time they got to us crossing the river the wrong way and we roll their fingerprints and something would come back in the system. Occasionally it would be that they got denied. Occasionally, it was because their name was misspelled somewhere, and it got denied, and then they just get frustrated. I caught a, a, a family one time, and they I said, "What are you guys doing? You know, why are you guys crossing?" And they said, well, "We want to go to a wedding up in you know Socorro, uh, Texas, which is right there. Right. We're trying to go to a wedding today." And I said, "Well, you can't do it like this. You got to go over the bridge." And they're like, "Well, this is the only way we know how to do it." And so is the mom and the daughter and like a kid. And the mom, the elder, kind of elderly mom, I tell the daughter, I said, well, just go to Banamax and you get your permit and you go to the bridge and you apply for the permit. You got to pay like 500 bucks or whatever it was. I don't even know what it was back then. But I said, it's not that hard to get a visitor permit for a day. And you come up, you can go to the wedding and then you go back home. And the mother just glares at the daughter because the mother feels so embarrassed to be caught like a, a, a common peasant crossing the river. And oh my gosh. I imagine Thanksgiving or whatever, Thanksgiving, I guess, but I imagine the Christmas dinners at that, at that household were probably not quite as friendly anymore after that. Yeah. 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 I, I would imagine that is insane. I also imagine that the equipment that Border Patrol is is using for surveillance is top notch, like night vision and thermal sensors. Has it ever recorded something that wasn't visible by the naked eye? Many, many times, many times. So we say use this one thing. We call it the Johnny Five because of that movie Short Circuit. It looked like that robot Johnny Five. You know, it's got the little lenses like this. You know, so you basically hold it up and it's a clear call a recon. They're like hundred thousand dollar unit and here we are a uh, rough border patrol agents do, 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 with these things you know stories <laughs> hundred thousand dollars uh but this thing has the ability to snap pictures like a digital camera with a lot of other things that i can't talk about that it can do so he's looking at the border fence and he sees what appears to be a hot spot on the fence it looks like a body climb, climbing the fence so he snaps a picture i don't know why but he snaps a picture 
and he goes racing over towards it and he gets kind of close to where he thinks it was. He can't see it with his flashlight. So he uses the, the player again and looks up. It's still there. And so at this point, he's like, wait a minute, something's wrong. Something's different. And he snaps another picture. And so I saw the two pictures and what it was, was sort of an oval, about a six foot oval attached to the top of the fence, sort of like a person climbing the fence. Okay. But it wasn't hot. It wasn't a heat signature. We realized that it was backwards, that it was actually a cold signature. I don't know, 60, 55, 60 degrees outside. And this thing was a lot colder. I have no explanation. The fence is made of metal. Um, if anything, it would be giving off heat. I don't understand why it would be giving off a stationary spot of cold that big and that cold. I don't know. Uh, other times uh, I was in the camera room and we saw a guy come. Actually, I was outside at that moment, but they saw a guy come across the river and go into a bush. And I walk in the camera room and I said, what's going on? And they said, we got a guy. He just came across. He's hiding in that, in that brush right there. I said, that's an awful small bush to be hiding in, but okay. But you can see the heat signature. It was significantly more warm than everything else around it. And so they call the agents. The agents move in. They use their flashlights, and they're looking for sign, which is footprints. So they're looking for footprints. And let me tell you, we can track some people. The smallest thing we know that somebody's been there. And they're like, we got nothing. And I, we're like, go take a left. Go to the left. There's a there's a bush there. Go into the, he went in that bush. He disappeared in that bush and they walk around the bush. And that's when you start realizing how small the bush is. It's maybe three feet tall, maybe two feet across. And you can see the agent behind it, like a little piece of sagebrush or something. It's not possible for a person to hide behind it. And the guy just disappears behind it as if he was hiding. Like he dropped into a hole. That's crazy. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, you have this huge collection of these stories and you're very open and telling them. Generally, are other Border Patrol agents fairly open to, sh- you know, they come back to their break room or to be uh, switch out their their shift and they share these stories freely? Or is it something you kind of keep on the down low until you retire? Uh, a little of both. So uh, people have realized that I was a good, I guess, somebody to talk to about that sort of thing because they knew they know I'm legit. Uh, I'm not faking stuff. You know, they, they know that uh, I'm not going to sit there and make fun of them or anything like that, you know, call them crazy. And so a lot of these guys tell me a lot of things that happen to them, but they won't tell other people. They'll only, they'll tell me. So they tell me a lot of things and I've heard, I've heard some terrifying things. I've heard some things that I just don't understand. And I know they're not, they're not nuts. You know, they're, they're not mentally ill in any way. I just don't understand how they think they saw that or what they're even talking about. I mean, we are very used to ghost stories here in Pensacola, Florida. This town was first um, colonized in the 1500s, and they used to report our ghost sightings in the newspaper because there was that little going on. And uh, so we have lots of stories of, of ghosts that are documented from in the past, but also it's pretty common to report these things. But as you know, in current day, but even with that in mind, it feels like the border is just a little special. And you also have all these experiences, you know, the DeSoto Hotel, which I know unfortunately had a fire recently, but you also make your own equipment to track all these occurrences, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I buy a lot because it's just easier and it does what I want it to do, but I do 
build some of the things. I've tried to invent certain things based on the theories that I thought were true, like a coil and a magnet. I guess you call it a, a microphone that works on a different frequency, not air, but works on like electrical, like an electrical microphone sort of thing. And it just didn't work. I don't know what I got wrong, you know, but it didn't work. But I also built uh, what they call a portal, which is a, uh, an, it's an invention invention made by a guy named Steve Huff, and he he's beyond what I'm using. Mine's kind of analog. He's up to digital at this point, and his his communication is phenomenal, and it's legit. I mean, I'm sure he's got to record for hours to get five minutes of of good stuff, but the five minutes of good stuff is good, and it's there. What I use is basically like a portable uh, guitar speaker with guitar pedals that are attached to it. It's a noise reducer and plus a reverb. And you're supposed to plug it into the wall, but I made it portable. I go through a lot of batteries that way. I, I made it to, to where you could use batteries on it so I could take it everywhere. I could take it into a cemetery if I wanted to, which is awesome. You can get the stories of, of the people from themselves. As a side note, actually, uh, uh, Two days ago, I was in the local cemetery, a place called um, Concordia, which is a very old, well, it's for El Paso, it's very old. It's not the very first cemetery, but it's from the eight, 1880s is when it kind of became popular to use that cemetery. Started getting divided up into the different, you know, uh, churches and stuff like that. Anyway, there's a person that was, that was, that was buried there. She's kind of a local celebrity, but. She's been marginalized for way too long. So I went to the her gravestone and I started asking her questions. And this woman's voice came through and it's kind of a gravelly voice that came through. See, she passed away from uh, tuberculosis. And so I kind of attribute that maybe to what she had when she died. <clears throat> but her voice came through kind of a gravelly voice. Uh, a little bit older and she was a little bit older when she passed away. So I started asking, you know, what year were you born? Because the headstone says 1860 something. And so she didn't answer that, but I said, where were you born? Why is your name? Because her name's Florida. I said, why is your name Florida? If you were born in Illinois, because all the books say Illinois. Well, she said she was born in Cuba. And I was like, well, that's not in the history book, but it makes perfect sense because she appeared uh, she appeared Mexican, she, but she was black and she spoke really good Spanish and she ended up living in Mexico for a while and stuff. I'm like, well, this makes perfect sense. You know, she's Cuban. Yeah. You know, so she, wow. you think she was Afro-Caribbean? Yeah, I think so. I actually think so. Uh, so her last name was Wolf and one of the uh, biggest slave traders in Cuba up until about 1885 or something like that. Wait, like 20 years after the Civil War, when it was made illegal in the United States, way after it was made illegal, like England and places like that, uh, Cuba was still trading. They were still doing it. And the family's name was DeWolf. So I was like, well, DeWolf and Wolf, she, you know, obviously she wanted some last name. And that's probably what they, her family decided to use was Wolf, kind of identify themselves as being victims of that family at the time. Wow. And I was like, now it makes sense. And it's not in history books. It came from her. And she passed away like in, I don't know, 110, 115 years ago. And she's telling me herself where she's from. Nobody knows this stuff. Oh and I God. thought that was so incredible. That is incredible. You really are a ghost detective. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm trying. I, I, I just like to unravel these things, you know. 
I want to give the people the respect they deserve. I don't want people to misread history and believe the wrong things. History is always written by the wrong people, I think. And you'd be surprised at what you can uncover once you start uh, really digging. These big historic events are not what you think they are. Uh, it's just crazy. You know, uh, the government saves what they want to save. Uh, you go to look at certain treaties and what led up to certain treaties. And the government says, this is the official story. And then you start looking at eyewitness accounts were written 200 years ago. You know, these people were there. And you start putting these things together, the, the general's memoirs, you know, stuff like that. You start putting these things together and it starts making sense. Where were they? What were they eating? You know, what was the attitude? Etc. Well, the official story doesn't make any sense now. So then you have to realize that the true history is different. And that's why I like talking to the dead people because they could tell me what they knew if they decide. <laughs> you are definitely not a, a typical ghost tour guide. So I love it. Before we sign off, tell everyone where they can find your tours and definitely on um, socials where they can stay in touch with what you're doing on your tours. So my company's called El Paso Ghost Tours, our Facebook page. We have about 14,000 followers, a little bit more than that. We got a, a quickly growing Instagram page. It says El Paso Ghost Tours, got a logo. Uh, so that's where you can see a lot of the stuff too. Perfect. Well, I look forward to staying in touch. You know, if you're ever in Pensacola, you are just obligated now to get in touch with me. And I'll do the same if I'm in El Paso. Thank you again. This was Really awesome. Right on. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, you'll also like the one I did with Hawaiian culture ambassador and legendary storyteller, Lopaka Kapanui, about the haunted tales of Hawaii. That's episode 159. And, you know, since you made it this far, now's a great time to take a screenshot and share about it on social media. Be sure to tag me. I'm at Meredith for real. Stay tuned next week when I talk with a man considered to be the most credible phenomenon experiencer, Chris Bledsoe, as we ask the taboo question, are aliens really angels? <laughs> <laughs>